as a child in Sunday school, the example of Jesus was often held up before me, like, be like Jesus, follow his example. But I found myself being crushed under this heavy burden. I mean, seriously, what child wants to be crucified, right? Or wants to be rejected or to take that. It, it was too much for me, especially as a child. And I constantly found myself more like Peter than like Jesus. I wanted to sleep. I should be alert and praying. When I should be listening, I was arguing. I wanted to hide when I should be following. I wanted to deny and fit in when I should be standing up, standing out, and declaring. Those WWJD bracelets are killers. I remember seeing it on an arm of a certain athlete, and you're kind of like, oh, great, there's a Christian. And then hearing of all these rotten, terrible things he was doing in his life. Because you see, it's not about doing what Jesus would do, but allowing Jesus to work in us what he's already done. If we keep it outward, As an example, it will never go inward as the power of grace. The new covenant is all about God implanting Jesus within us. It's about God's kingdom coming to live and take rulership of our hearts. And the outworking of God's kingdom in our hearts is that we will become we will manifest the life of Jesus in us. Paul said to the Galatians, I labor in birth pangs for you till Christ is formed in you. That's what it's about. It's about Jesus being formed in us. And because Jesus is formed in us, Jesus begins to speak through us. Jesus begins to change the way we think, the way we act in our activity. So it's not about what we do for Jesus. It's about what Jesus works in and through our lives. God supplies the desire and the power in us so that we begin to think like Jesus. We are becoming more like Jesus. There is a huge demeanor, a huge difference in the demeanor, the desires, and the activities of the disciples before the crucifixion and after. Before the crucifixion, before Christ lived in them by the power of the Holy Spirit, before he was in that upper room in John chapter 20 and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Before that, Before that, we see the disciples failing again and again and again, all through the Gospels. In fact, the whole Bible is all about man's failure and God's goodness and grace and glory and generosity in sending Jesus for us. But it is from start to finish our failure and his glory, his goodness. The disciples, they fail even after the resurrection. They're in a locked room. Until Jesus comes and appears and breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus drank the cup that no other man could drink. Remember John and James? They're like, Lord, we we want to sit on your right hand and your left. And Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup? 
and be baptized with the baptism. And they're like, yes, Lord, we're able. And he says, no, no, but you will be baptized. But, and you will drink the cup, but you'll drink the cup after I've, I've had the cup. I will give you another cup. I will give you my baptism. And I'll bring you into the work that I will do. No man but Jesus could drink the wrath of God against sin and survive it. But Jesus, because he was absolutely sinless, absolutely righteous, could bear the indignation of God's wrath against sin and triumph in it and save mankind through it. No one but Jesus could endure the contrariness of sinners. Jesus allowed men to brutalize him, yet his heart and attitude towards sinners never changed. During the whole trial, he is seeking their salvation. He kept loving. He kept forgiving because he is and always will be who he is, Jesus, the Savior. He never changes his disposition. He never changes his wisdom. He never changes his compassions. He remains as he is. Jesus is so much greater in love, in goodness, in power, in glory than we could ever begin to fathom. He did what no man before him could ever do. He did what no man after him could ever do. Jesus alone. Do not try to make Jesus merely your example. He must be your life. He, you must enter into what he has already done. We must ingest his work, his, his body, his blood. Jesus alone fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, something we've never done and never could do, even on our best days. All you have to do is get on the freeway and every good work you've ever done will be blown. You ever have that? I mean, I find myself looking at cars going, and I'm like, I hope they think I'm just praising the Lord. Like, I'm so glad you pulled in front of me and almost killed me. You know, I I did that yesterday. Praise the Lord, I was able to make it almost righteously to church today driving. But if anything tries my goodness, it is driving Harbor Boulevard. Somebody was saying the other day, they've never seen so many cars run red lights like they do on Harbor Boulevard. It is the red light running capital of the world. Uh, you know, and, and this car just pulls in front of me, just suddenly, no blinker, no warning, just, and I, I find myself going, this was yesterday on the way home from church. And I'm like, and you know, it's like the Holy Spirit goes, what are you doing? Uh, praising? <laughs> Exercising? <laughs> Take your pick. What about showing your flesh? Oh, yeah, that would be it. That would be it. You know, and just a second before that, I was like, Lord, you're so good. I love you so much. Thank you for this car that was given to me. Thank you that I have a home I'm going to. I mean, I was in a spirit of praise until that car drove it right out of me. Like, I don't even know what that means. 
Actually, I kind of do. It's like, what are you thinking, idiot? I mean, it was a lot of bad stuff, as shown by my gestures. You know, we can be so in the spirit one moment, can't we? So like, oh, I just love Jesus. And so awful the next moment, even surprising ourselves. That can't be me. I must be schizophrenic or multiple personalities. (laughs) Something's going on. No wonder so many Christians think that they can be demon-possessed. You're not. You got the flesh to contend with. But if we try to make Jesus just our example, then we will fall. We will be crushed by his goodness. We will be crushed by his generosity. We will be crushed by his example. Jesus alone fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Jesus alone established the covenant of God. Jesus alone drank the cup. Jesus alone endured the wrath of man against God. And Jesus alone endured the wrath of God against man. Trying to simply follow the model of Jesus will leave us with one of three attitudes. We'll either be like the religious elite we read about in Luke chapter 22, who plotted to get rid of Jesus. They envied him because they knew they couldn't live like he lived. They envied him because his righteousness was so perfect. They envied him because God's power was so manifest in him to heal others. No one did what Jesus ever did. They envied him because he exposed their darkness. He exposed their evil intents. He exposed their true nature. And because of that, they wanted to destroy him. Or we will become like Judas, starting with Jesus, moving with the disciples, but turning because his example is so, so good. Conspiring against him, betraying him, because we want to keep our own desires. I know so many, having grown up in the church, who started out with Jesus, excited about it. But when they realized that their righteousness was not righteous enough, their sacrifices were not righteous enough, they didn't want Jesus anymore. Because they wanted to hold on to their lifestyle. They wanted to hold on to their own self-righteousness. They didn't want to be told that what they were doing was sin. And they didn't want to have to stop doing what they were doing. And they ended up not only conspiring against Jesus, betraying him. But resigning themselves over to their sinful natures. And going lower than they ever imagined they could go and gave in to the basest nature that they possessed. I think about how many who have started out have become antagonists of the church, even written books antagonizing the church. When I was growing up, there was a man, his name was Marjo something, and he became an actor. And before that, he had been an evangelist, and he completely denied the faith to become an actor. And you know what? His greatest, his, his greatest achievement that I could ever 
see on television was being on Love Boat once. And some of you don't even know what Love Boat is. Good. That's a good thing. Except for Captain Steubing was often mistaken for Chuck Smith. And Chuck Smith for Captain Steubing. This is a side note. My dad was in Savons. And this man comes up to him and goes, I know who you are. And my dad goes, well, praise the Lord. He goes, yes, I watch you all the time. My dad goes, great. And, you know, my dad has this, you know, yes, I like you. I like your authority. I like your power. My dad's, well, great, you know, great. And the man turns around and goes, goodbye, captain. And my dad's like, captain, captain. And then he tells my mom, and my mom goes, you do look like Captain Stoopy on Love Boat. Not that I've ever watched it, but once or twice. So my dad had to watch it just to see Captain Steubing. Years later, he actually um, met um, Gavin McLeod, who played Captain Steubing. He's a Christian. And they met at a, a wedding that my dad was doing. And Gavin McLeod says, you know, I was in the store. And this man was saying, you know, I just love you and thank you for all you've done. And he said, I was saying, great. And he goes, you baptized me in 1977. <laughs> and my dad said, what did you say? He said, I said, praise the Lord. <laughs> My dad said, well, I was at Savon's and, you know, told him the, the situation. And then they got their picture taken together, which was just, you know, adorable. Okay, this has nothing to do with this Bible study. But we will become like Peter, arguing with other disciples and competitive, sleeping when we should be alert rash in our actions, failing in our own resolves, fearful for our lives, acting nothing like Jesus, no matter how much we desire to be like Jesus, no matter how much we try to stay awake, no matter how many times we attempt to do the right thing, no matter how closely we watch and follow after Jesus, we will fail if we try to make Jesus merely our example and not our lives. What Jesus requires of us is not to be like him, but to be filled with him by faith. Faith faith in what he tells us to do. Faith in what he tells us he is doing. Faith in his work, what he alone has accomplished. We enter into the new covenant that he has established. This new covenant that was so necessary. So necessary. Without this new covenant, we're still left in our sins. Without this new covenant, there is no power to walk like Jesus. No power to live like Jesus. We cannot enter into this new covenant by our goodness or by following Jesus' example. Not even by doing what Jesus did. We enter the covenant simply by believing in Jesus Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Savior who sacrificed his life to pay the penalty for our sins. That's faith. That's faith. And that's how we enter into the covenant Jesus established, kept, and died for and rose again. In Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 13, you see this preparation for this new covenant. You see 
the religious elite preparing for Passover. This is the time when all of Israel would take the lamb, the lamb, the Passover lamb for each of the families of Israel, and they would take it to the high priest to be slain or to the priest, the Levites at the temple to be slain. And then they would receive their portion back that they would take home to partake with their family. And this was a necessity for every family in Israel. So we see the people in Israel preparing the lambs to be slain. And as they're doing this, they're reminded of the price that was paid for their deliverance from death and slavery in Egypt. At the same time that the people are bringing the lamb to the temple, the chief priests are plotting and planning to bring the lamb of God to Calvary, to put the lamb of God upon the wood. The disciples, in the meantime, are following Jesus' specific instructions to prepare the room to celebrate the Passover. All of these are preparatory to the covenant that Jesus is establishing with us. Jesus sends his disciples into Jerusalem with detailed directions. A man with a pitcher on his head. Now, maybe you think, well, that was Bible times. But in those days, it was usually women who carried the water. It was very unusual to see a man with a pitcher on his head, as it is today. (laughs) And they were to follow this man to the house that he entered. And then they were to ask for the master of that house. And as they asked for the master of this house, they would say to him, Where is the room where Jesus is to celebrate? Celebrate, what a word. The Passover with his disciples. Then the man would show them a large furnished upper room. As the disciples followed Jesus' directives, they found it just as he said. Jesus is preparing them for the conditions of the new covenant. Up until this point, they've been able to see Jesus, to follow Jesus. But now they are going to have to learn to depend on the word of Jesus and to obey the word of Jesus. You will find in Acts, uh, the disciples remembered the word of the Lord and they remembered the word of the Lord. And they're going to call upon that word and follow Follow that word because they will no longer be able to see Jesus, but they will follow his word. They are learning to listen carefully now to Jesus' words, to his instructions, and to follow it. And as they did, they found it just as he said. There in this upper room, verses 14 through 38, Jesus established or instituted the new covenant. Jesus sits down with the 12 and he speaks of his fervent or burning desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Imagine that. This is the meal. This is the meal. It's right before Jesus' suffering, right before this incredible ordeal. And yet, this was the meal that with burning desire he wanted to have with his disciples. He wanted this time. He had looked forward to this time since man's fall in the garden, that he would sit down and he would explain to these disciples the work of salvation, the work of the new covenant, the greatness of this covenant, what he would do to bring them back into fellowship with the Father. 
Jesus says, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, not before we suffer. You see, Jesus alone establishes this covenant. He alone met the criteria for this covenant. It's not a we, it's a he met the criteria. This is the covenant that Jesus fervently was desiring to reveal to them. His body would be broken for them. His blood would be poured out or shed for you. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. First, I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus would fulfill or bring this new covenant to fruition. So Jesus takes the cup. And he gives thanks for it. And he says, take this and divide it among yourself. For I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is what was necessary to bring the kingdom of God to the hearts of men. You see, God wants to make it internal, not external. The law was external. And you know, there's a danger if today we have the new covenant and we leave it external. The new covenant is Internal. Listen to this. When God talks about the covenant that he will establish in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, you're going to see that it's internal. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That's internal. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. But everyone from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, shall know me. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the new covenant. It's internal. It will be written on our hearts. It will be in our minds. And we won't have to say, this is how you know the Lord. We will have relationship with God, the Father. This is the covenant that Jesus is establishing at this last Supper, this Passover, and he institutes it with his body and his blood. They are to ingest it. They are to take it in, and they ingest it by faith. This is my body, Jesus says in verse 19, which is given for you. This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, which is shed for you, verse 20, instituted like the first Passover, It is to be done again and again and again in remembrance of what Jesus has done. Lest we ever think it's about what we've done. Lest we ever think that we also need the law or an addition. You see, the Passover was celebrated only once a year to bring the people back in remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. But this... This new covenant, which we call communion. Why do we call it communion? Because it's about relationship. It's about bringing us into oneness with God through Jesus Christ. 
It's about reconciliation. It's about fellowship. When I commune with someone, I'm going on a deeper level. There are times I talk to Brian. In fact, he says I, I talk to him all the time. But then there are times that we commune. And when we commune, it's when Brian and I go to a deeper level, when we have the same thoughts, when we have the same feelings. The other day we were driving together, Brian was driving, and I looked over and there was a lady and she had this, she had white hair and it was in this bun that just stuck on top and her, her, her lower mouth, it just, it went out, her lower lip was in this kind of determined pout. And she had her hands on the wheel, 10 and 12, and she was, or 10 and whatever, and uh, 10 and 2, and she was like, her, her head was thrust forward. And I looked over and I thought, she looks like a cartoon character that I've seen in, you know, on a Saturday morning in my youth. And Brian looks over and he goes, she looks like a cartoon character. And you know, at that moment, I knew we were communing. <laughs> we were having the same thought at the same time and seeing the same thing. And interpreting it the same way. There was a oneness. And I was like, I thought the same thing. And then we had another one like two minutes later. We're like, oh, it was like, I don't know why, but we got really excited. Like, we're so married. (laughs) We've so hit 37 years. This is so exciting. But there's that communing. That goes deeper. You know what it is. You, you know what it's like to go out with your friends and ha- have a talk. But then you know what it is to go out and commune. When heart means, meets heart, there's something deeper. So we call it communion because heart means heart. And the blood of Jesus pours over our heart and begins to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we take in his body and his brokenness for us that we might live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is what happens, and so we call it communion. But it's that new covenant that we begin to appropriate for ourselves what Jesus has done. And there's no specific day. There's no specific time because it's meant to be a continually, a continual reminder, a daily reminder that it's Jesus alone who has done these great, marvelous, stupendous, compassionate, glorious things for us. Now, while Jesus is speaking about the depths, why he's even establishing and instituting this new covenant with the disciples, he tells them, even though there's 12 that's partaking of them, one is doing it insincerely. For one, it will mean nothing because that one will turn and betray him because he's allowed Satan to enter into his heart and his mind and his thinking, as we talked about earlier. But as the disciples hear this, they begin to interrogate each other over who would do such a thing. And this turns into an argument over which of them should be considered the greatest. Can you imagine? Oh, how faulted the nature of mankind is. 
you know, at the most serious moments, I mean, think about it. Sometimes we are singing about the blood of Jesus, about the glory of the cross, and we are thinking, I need to clean my kitchen sink. We're thinking we're so not there. Or we're thinking, I don't like the way that couple in front of me is acting during worship. I wish she'd quit playing with her hair. It's driving me crazy. You know what I'm saying? We are thinking we're superior to somebody else. We're thinking we're better than, even while we're talking about the cross of Christ. This is our nature. I'm not alone in this. You've done this. You've been thinking about Jesus and then had a car pull in front of you and done. Or maybe you did. Or I don't know what you did, but I know you've done it. I know you've done it for two reasons. You're a woman and you drive the roads. And Jesus has to correct correct their thinking. He says, you know what? This is how you are right now. But when the new covenant takes effect, this is not how it's going to be. Under the terms of the new covenant, just as you were following my directives and you found it just as I said, even as you're going to ingest my work for you, you are going to serve one another. I'm among you as one that serves. You're not going to be like the Gentiles. You're going to be distinct. Right now, there's no distinction between the disciples and the Gentiles. Lording over each other, the competition There's no difference. They're acting like those Gentiles that lord over each other. But once this covenant is instituted, once the Lord begins to work in them, the new nature will take effect. And the greatest will be like the younger. And those who govern like those who serve. When you get to the book of Acts, you don't see the disciples competing with each other, comparing themselves to each other. You see them working together, not to build their own kingdom, but to build the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul rebukes the Corinthians because they're saying, I'm a Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. He says, no, we've never died for you. Maybe some of you were baptized, but we're just the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus It's about building the kingdom of Jesus. He talks about how some men have been building on the kingdom of Jesus and they've been building their own kingdoms. And those were like wood, hay, and straw. But those who were building the kingdom of God, they had to use the imperishable word of God, the truth. It's about building the kingdom of God. That's what will happen under the new covenant. Then he speaks of the rewards of the new covenant. These undeserving disciples will be given a kingdom just as God bestowed a kingdom to Jesus. They'll be part of the the glorious kingdom and in God's kingdom. They'll have a place. They'll participate. They will eat and drink at his table. They will sit on thrones and they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. These undeserving these argumentative, these competitive, these humans will be glorified 
Only Jesus has the authority to bestow such honor in his kingdom. No man has the right to bestow a kingdom to another man. No man. But Jesus has the right. Jesus has the right. Jesus then intercedes for his disciples in verses 31 through 53. He explains to Peter the spiritual and personal failure that Peter will experience. Satan has asked for Peter by name. How enormously frightened mean is this prospect? Can you imagine? I mean, I read the book of Job and I'm like, Lord, never, please never brag about me in front of the devil. Never say, hey, have you seen Cheryl, my servant? (laughs) Is she doing great? Please don't do that. But I think about Satan had seen Peter and he said, I see his weaknesses. I can take this guy down so easily. And he asked for Peter by name. The cruelest, most diabolical, most destructive force in person ever. The power behind every despot and wicked criminal. In fact, in Psalms, it says, even the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Specifically asked for Peter. His name knew him, knew his nature, knew his habits, knew his failings. And as we know, the devil has schemes and wiles. And Peter would later talk about how Satan goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he could devour. Peter knew it personally. Satan had spotted him, asked for him by name, said, let me sift him like chaff. Let me have this one. Satan had influenced him in the past. Satan had had this, this, this inroad to Peter. When Peter said to Jesus, let it be far from you. When Jesus had talked about the crucifixion. Now the crucifixion is, a, is about to happen. And only one thing stands between Peter and utter destruction. And that's the intercession of Jesus Christ. Jesus here prays for Peter. And Jesus knows exactly what Peter needs. We're told in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit knows exactly what we need. Exactly. And so he makes intercession with groaning before God's throne, knowing exactly what we need. The Holy Spirit can look at the situation. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly what we need. And he looks at Peter and he knows exactly what Peter needs, exactly what we need. What do we need to prevail? What do we need to make it through, to persevere through the hardest time of life? We need faith. And this is what Peter didn't need, faith in Peter. Peter would fail. You see, right then, Peter looks at Jesus and says, you know, what do you mean? I'm ready to to follow you to death. You see, Peter has faith in Peter. Faith that he can make it through. Faith that he can stand. I love you this much. I'm I'm so strong. I'm so compassionate. I'm so zealous for you, Jesus. You could trust me, Jesus. I'll stand for you. And Jesus says this to Peter. He says, when you repent, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you have returned and when you have repented, strengthen your brethren. Jesus 
his, his prayers work. What he prays happens. It's actualized. Peter was given faith. Even through the most tremendous trying time of his life, even when he failed himself, it was faith in Jesus that brought him through. And he did indeed return to Jesus. In John chapter 21, we're we're told that Jesus sat down with Peter and he restored Peter personally. And what do we see in the book of Acts? We see Peter strengthening the brethren over and over again. And when you read 1 Peter and when you read 2 Peter, you know what you are? You are strengthened. You are strengthened to go through trials and fires and hardship. And he even says, during the hardest place when you are suffering for Christ, the spirit of grace and glory will rest upon you. You will feel his presence. Peter knew it firsthand. Jesus said, no, there's hope in your future. There's hope. You're going you're gonna to deny that you even knew me three times. This is no surprise from Jesus. You know how we're always like, Lord, I'm sorry I failed you. I know you thought I wasn't going to. We always think that, you know, you're so disappointed in me right now, Lord. I know you must be so disappointed. You know, I used to have a look that I got really convicted over that I used to give my kids. It was just like the, so disappointed in you. You know, Jesus never gives us that look. Like, oh, because he knows the frailty of our humanity. He knows how much we need what he's done for us. His expectation is what he, in what he's done for us. And it's only as we ingest it, only as we take it in. Jesus has prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. Faith in Jesus, to believe in Jesus' word and work. To put Peter's faith not in the injustice of men, not in the power of Satan. You know, sometimes that's where our faith is. We believe that men and their lies and their slander and their evil is going to prevail. And we have more faith in the evil of men than in the victory of Jesus. Not in the power of Satan. Sometimes we have more faith in the power of Satan. Well, he's going to take me down than in the power of Jesus Christ to bring us through. Not in his own strength. Sometimes we have more faith in our strength than we do in Jesus' strength. Lord, I don't expect you to do this for me because you're kind of busy, you know, keeping Pluto, deciding whether it's a planet or not. I'll take care of this one. Our faith is in the word and work of Jesus Peter had faith in Peter. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But Jesus prepares Peter for his own failure. Jesus would not be surprised, not even dismayed at Peter's failure. Jesus knew it was coming. And he was preparing Peter for his own failure. That only faith in Jesus, not faith in Peter, would get him through this. We have too much faith in our own humanity. We have too much faith in ourselves. And that's going to lead us to a fall. But faith in Jesus allows us to say, oh, 
There goes Cheryl again. <laughs> I'm so glad it's all about Jesus. So glad it's based on Jesus. Jesus then prepared the disciples. He reminds them of the divine provision they received under his commission. 35, remember, when you were obeying me and doing what I said, you lacked nothing. Now he recommends that they be fully prepared for the harsh time that is coming. Money bag, sack, sword, garment. Because right now is coming a time where they would be absent from Jesus. Three days where they would hide, where they would need to be on guard. Three days where they would lack, where they would feel the incredible deficit. The deficit of their own failure. The deficit of of their gaping need for salvation, the deficit of the presence of Jesus, they would feel it for three days, the agony of life without Jesus. Does the disciples at this point do not understand the implication or the hour that is about to come to try them, and they will fall back into what they knew before they ever met Jesus. So they volunteer their swords because they don't understand. At the moment when they should be understanding, when they should be grasping the depths of what Jesus is about to do, they are clueless. Jesus now prepares himself for the hour that is coming, and he leads the disciples to Gethsemane, the place that he often went to while he was in Jerusalem, and he goes there to pray in a grove of olive trees. And some of the olive trees that are in Gethsemane right now are at the base of the Mount of Olives are over 2,000 years old. Mike Harris on Good Friday spoke about how these gardens had an olive press in them. And there the disciples would be reminded of the pressing down and the pressure that would be put upon the olives to bring forth the oil that would sustain, that would anoint. He instructs the disciples to pray that they won't enter into temptation. That word enter is eskomai, eskomai. And it means to, to go into, to go deep into. To, to go through a door, to go through a threshold. You see, there are temptations, and the door of temptation is open. And he says, I'm, I want you to pray that you don't go through that door. Don't go through the door of temptation. Don't, don't go in it. They'd be tempted to give up. They would be tempted to turn away from Jesus. They would be tempted to unbelief. And he's saying, don't go through the door of unbelief. Don't go through the door of self-preservation. Don't go through the door of resignation. Don't go through those doors. And he removes himself at stone's throw, 10 to 20 feet away. And he begins to pray. Now Jesus is praying in deep agony, in pain, and in a sorrow that the disciples have never, ever seen in Jesus before. So much so that he begins to, to sweat under the pressure of what he sees and what he's feeling. And his blood vessels begin to rupture. It's called hemodystrosis. And it's a condition not unlike 
post-traumatic stress disorder. And he prays, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus is proving again that salvation is established by him alone and by his work. There is no other way. Three times. Three times he prays. In Hebrew, you would repeat a word twice to, to show that it meant completeness. In Isaiah, you have the scripture, he will, uh, Isaiah 26, 3, he will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. But the word is he will keep him in peace, peace. Shalom, shalom. Showing that it's complete, it's perfect. But when you add a third time, it means there's no other way. This is it. Jesus prays three times. It was a prayer that the disciples had, would hear and would know he was repeating even in their sleep. You know how you have those times where you're sleeping, but you hear everything going on around you? It's kind of like being in a self-induced coma where you can hear the talking, but you, you, you can't really talk. And the disciples were heavy with sleep. I believe the Spirit allowed them to be heavy with sleep because this hour was meant for Jesus alone. They were only to pray that they didn't, didn't, wouldn't enter into temptation. But they were not praying to drink the cup. That was not theirs to drink. The cup was for Jesus alone. If salvation is possible, if there is any other way, and you know, there are those right now that say, oh, I don't understand why God would allow his son to die. And Jesus is showing there is no other way. This is it. This is the only way that man can be saved. The only way would be for Jesus, the perfect man, our God, to be crucified for us. He alone can establish the terms of salvation, to do it all for us. And even then, he's getting a visual of why it's him alone. Because the disciples who he chose, they can't even stay awake during this hour with him, let alone drink the cup. And they're heavy with sleep. And God shows Jesus this cup. What is this cup? You know, we talk about death. And when men talk about death, we're talking about the separation of the spirit our personality from our body. Our personality goes to heaven and our body becomes a statue and then begins to decompose. There's no more life to it when the spirit leaves the body. But when the Bible speaks of death, it's the separation of man from God. And Jesus, when he would go to the cross, the cup he's looking at is separation from God. He who said, I always do those things that please my father. I have lived my entire existence to please my father. The purpose of my life has always been about pleasing my father. And now this father, even as I continue to please him, I will be separated from him. Not because I refuse to please him, 
but because I was resolved to please him even unto death. So Jesus poured out his life even unto death, and he sees this cup, this cup, it's an eternal cup of, of being forsaken by God, of God turning himself away, of, of the great uniting of father and son, of this great chasm coming between them. As Jesus bears the penalty of sin upon himself, that which he hated, that which he despised, that which brought about the wrath of God, he would hold, he would carry, and he would die for it. And Jesus sees the cup. Think about that cup. What does he see in that cup? He sees rape. He sees murder. He sees defilement. He sees curses. He sees ugliness. That cup. And in the garden, he resolves to drink, to drink that cup. You know, it's one thing to have something happen to you. And it's another thing to know everything you're getting yourself into and then walk into it. You know, a lot of people have lost children. And I, I, I can't think of anything more painful. But if you knew the day that you received that precious little child, that someday by that child was still young, you would have to put that child back into the arms of Jesus. You might say, I'd rather never have that child so I don't have to go through that pain. Some of you have prodigals and the thought has come to you before. I wish I'd never had this child. If I had known how much pain I was going to go through. I might never have gotten married. I might never have gotten pregnant. I might never have given birth. Jesus drank the cup. He looked into that cup. He knew everything it meant. He knew the brutality of men. He knew the separation from his father. He knew exactly what he was drinking. And as he took the cup, and voluntarily took it down and drank it for us. His blood vessels begin to rupture. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, you have not yet resisted sin to the shedding of blood. Everything in Jesus revolted against drinking that blood. All of his goodness, all of his generosity, all of that nature that pleased the Father from the beginning of time revolted and was repulsed by this cup. But he drank it. He drank it for you. For me. And he rises from this agony of prayer to find his disciples pleasing, uh, pleasing, sleeping. They can't, like me, I can't even say the right word at the most important time. They slept. I'm so one of the disciples. We need a savior who does what crippled humanity cannot do. This is our savior. Now, in the garden, in this serenity, in this sobering time, 
after an angel has just come and ministered to Jesus, what did that angel do? I think he said, all of heaven, all of heaven is so for you. Please let us strike the company that is coming against you. And Jesus said, no, this work's not for angels. This is my work alone. Stand back, sheath your swords. This is for me alone. And into this serenity, Judas enters with a multitude of armed guards with torches and bindings to bind Jesus with swords and clubs. And they come in this darkness. And Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss. Oh, the depths of betrayal and deceit. He comes up to Jesus. He calls him friend, even as he is plotting and identifying Jesus to the enemy so that Jesus can be arrested and bound and given over to crucifixion. He uses affection and affectionate terms as a means to betray Jesus. Peter, no doubt startled from sleep, Remember the last time he was startled from sleep? He announces, Lord, let us build three tabernacles. And God rebukes him. This time Peter's startled from sleep. And he draws his sword and he just strikes at the first thing. And think about it. How ineffective is Peter's fight? I mean, he doesn't slay anybody. He doesn't, he doesn't send the the mili- the the forces, the multitude that's come against Jesus running like, oh, they've got swords. Let's get out of here. All he does is lop off the high priest's servant's ear. His endeavor does so little, little to curtail the enemy. In fact, it just makes it more confusing. And Jesus stops Peter and says, permit even this. Peter must stand back and allow the circumstances to play out. The predetermined will of God to come to pass. Jesus undoes Peter's damage and heals the servant's ear. Then Jesus directly addresses the multitude that is standing with Judas. And this multitude is comprised of the chief priests, the captains of the temple, Soldiers and elders, and they have prepared themselves to come against a robber armed with swords and clubs poised for a battle. They have chosen a specific time when Jesus is in private. It's dark. It's not the day. It's the night. Not in the temple and not when people are around and he's teaching. But Jesus says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. I want to pause right here and say that evil only received an hour. We are going to have eternity with Jesus with no sorrow, no death, no pain, no tears. And because Jesus gave evil an hour, he limited its scope. He limited the power of evil, and he limited the timetable of evil forever, forever. He said, here's your hour, and you've got about 59 minutes left. This is your hour. 
I'm giving you this time to do as much damage, your worst, but then I'm going to take eternity. I'm going to bring salvation. I'm going to bring light and glory. Jesus puts a cap on evil. Peter and the disciples, they forsake Jesus in the garden, we're told in Mark. And in the meantime, Jesus is bound and he's led to Ananias' house. Bound because they're so intimidated by his power. Though they have him alone, Jesus alone. They are so intimidated that they bind him as if that will hold him back. And he goes with them as a lamb to the slaughter. He is 100% cooperative. He's not fighting. He's not screaming. He's not calling down legions of angels. He's not even saying, hey, you disciples, you come back and fight. He is silent and he goes with them. And his trial begins with false accusations and witnesses and brutality. And we're told at this point, Peter and John come into the court of the high priest's house. In those days, and you can actually see models of the high priest's house, houses of noblemen in those days, would, you would enter into these large, formidable doors, and you would come into a courtyard, and every room was built around the courtyard. And what they would do in order to allow enough light and ventilation for this, they would have drapes, and the drapes would be pulled back from these rooms, or they'd be or they'd be um, closed. And so no doubt as this trial begins, because people are coming and going, they've got this great room at the high priest's house, probably his largest room, his room for entertaining. And the curtains are pulled back. And Peter is there. And he can hear the angry raised voices of accusations against Jesus. He can hear the blasphemy shouted out at him. He could hear the sound of the fists being pummeled into Jesus. And he was powerless to defend Jesus. There was nothing he could do. He followed at a distance. He warmed himself at a courtyard fire. And then he began to deny Jesus. First, it's a servant girl who looks at him intently. And she says, you are of them. And he says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Another who saw him said, you are one of them. And he says, no. An hour later, a third accused him. Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. Three times Peter denies even knowing Jesus, any association with Jesus. Suddenly, as morning begins to dawn, after Peter's third denunciation, the rooster crows. And Peter looks at the room where Jesus is being brutalized. And the Savior looks at Peter and their eyes lock. Jesus didn't give Peter a disappointed look. It was Peter, have faith. Have faith. I knew this would happen, Peter. Peter, you will return. But Peter is so disappointed in himself. At this very hour of Jesus, this man that he said, I'll never deny you. I'll go to prison. I'll go to death. And Peter realizes the weakness, the utter weakness of his own humanity. 
As Satan had said to God in Job, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give to preserve his life. Peter there is doing all he can to preserve his own life. And Peter goes out realizing what he's done, and he weeps bitterly. The trial of Jesus continued into the morning, and he is led into the council meeting of the chief priests and scribes at Caiaphas' house. And the high priest demands, if you're the Messiah, tell us. Jesus is filled with wisdom. They have taken nothing from him. He is as wise as he ever was. And he says, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I ask, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 tells us about a great white throne where every man who has ever lived will stand And John, the author of Revelation, said, Blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection. Those of us who have believed in Jesus, we won't stand before that great white throne. We will be the audience. But those who have not believed, every man will give account before that throne. So Jesus is saying to this high priest in this company, we will meet again. But the next time you see me, I will be at the right hand of the power on high. Even as he had told them, reminding them of Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. They would be reminded of another time that they were questioning Jesus. And Jesus turned the question to them. These men are beyond faith. No matter what they see or hear, they will not believe. They've had the testimony of Jesus for three years as he's healed the blind. He's raised the dead. Nothing will change their minds or situations. As C.S. Lewis loved to point out, the door of hell is locked from the inside, not the outside. Men lock themselves into hell to keep God out. It is all predetermined, and man's decision is ratified in heaven. Then they say, are you then the son of God? And Jesus answered, you rightly say that I am. In other words, your own hearts are testifying to it. Your own hearts know. What you're doing, you are doing intentionally. It's not by mistake. If that were not the threat, they wouldn't be trying him. There was a deliberation and intentionality in their evil. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. This word that they would use to condemn Jesus would one day be the same word that would condemn their souls before God. Jesus did what fallen humanity could never do. Isaiah 63, 5 says, I looked, but there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. God looked. There was not a man 
that could live righteously. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one could live righteously. Fallen humanity was incapable of saving themselves. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even our best efforts to be like Jesus fail. Our sacred moments are fraught with argument and ambition. Jesus' revelation are often lost to us because of our self-boast and unrealistic self-expectations. We sleep while he is praying and interceding for us. We deny him while he is being tried and suffering. Why? Because our humanity is fallen, corrupted by sin, laced with self-preservation. We are lost beyond our ability to find our way back. But Jesus established the new covenant for us. He died for us while we were yet sinners. While we were yet enemies, shaking our fists at God, rebels, Jesus Christ established the new covenant for us that we could enter in. He did it because he knew we could not live up to the law of God or even to our own law or standards or even to the life of Jesus. He did what we could not do. Not only were we not worthy to do what he did, but we were unable on our best days, we are unable to emulate the posture of Jesus by our attempts, by our law-keeping, by our self-imposed resolves. This is all to say we need Jesus. We need what Jesus has done. I was walking out of um, a Friday morning, and this girl came up to me, this young woman, and she says, I did not want Jesus to die for me. I did not ask him to do it. He had no right to do it for me. And I said, I, I didn't know what to say. I said, well, I did. I needed him. I'm so glad he did because I realized that I could never do for myself what he's done for me, that I could never save myself. And if it weren't for Jesus, I would be lost forever from the presence of God because he did for me what I could never do for myself. Jesus initiated the covenant. We didn't even know how desperately we needed it when he did it. And Jesus invites us through faith, simply believing in his merits, in his goodness, in his generosity. By faith, believing in his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice and the efficacy of his blood to forgive our sins and purify our hearts, his perfect righteousness now given to us so that we may boldly enter into the throne room of grace to God as our father, not just as sovereign, not a master, but so great is the covenant that Jesus has made for us that he is our high priest pleading for us, for everything we need, for all the riches of heaven to be given to us because of what he's done and opening up the doors so we can approach God as father, as father, as not just benefactor, but daddy, Abba, my own. 
Jesus intercedes. He knows what we need to endure, to return, to be able to strengthen our brethren. Jesus drank the cup for us while we slept. Jesus suffered for us even when and while we denied any association with him. So how can we become like Jesus? Because that's the ultimate goal. Not by emulation, but by being filled with Jesus. Fill yourself with Jesus. Eat the bread of his life. Drink the cup of his blood. Take the elements of salvation he offers you by faith and eat again and again, remembering what he's done for you. When you fail, go back to the communion table and remember his body that was broken for you. Go back to the cup and drink it and remember that his blood was shed, that you might be forgiven, that you might have one new start after another, that all things might be passed away and all things might become new. Be nourished, be sustained by what Jesus has done for us. Remember his life, not yours. Remember his work, not yours. Remember his great love, not yours. Remember his power, not yours. Remember his merit, not yours. Jesus paid it all. Lay your deadly doing down, down, down at the feet of Jesus. And enter into this new covenant saying, Lord, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I receive what Jesus has done for me. It is his life then that becomes manifested in us. Not by us trying to manifest his life. But by Jesus coming and living in us. That's what the new covenant has done. It has put Jesus in us, in us, so that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I now live, I live through faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Let's stand and remember again that we have been crucified with Christ. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, here are your daughters. Lord, we've been trying so hard to be like Jesus, and we've been falling down under the condemnation of simply not living up to Jesus, not living up to his glory, not living up to his goodness, not living up to his generosity. Lord, will you forgive us for our vain attempts? And Lord, will you turn us away from trying and attempting to do by our own resolves and our own power and our own strength to, to doing it by faith and by letting you fill us and work through us. Lord, may the life of Jesus Christ be manifested in each one of us. Lord, when we fail, may we just receive the blood of your death and be forgiven and cleansed of our sins. And then may we partake and eat and be filled with the life of Jesus, that Jesus might live in greater degree in us 
and be seen in us and work through us by the power, Lord, you died that we might live through and by you. So, Lord, help us to receive this great grace that came to us through the new covenant you established for us. You and you alone died and made this covenant possible. We praise the name of Jesus right now with everything in us. Ladies, I'm, uh, while every eye is closed, maybe you just want to stretch out your hands and just be filled with Jesus. Just ask to be filled with Jesus. Just say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for thinking it was about me, ever about me, when it's all about you. And Lord, when I start to think it's about me, let me look back at you and let me be filled again with you and let me make it all about you and just simply being filled with Jesus to saturation point that I might pour out on others. Fill us with Jesus as we look at all you've done, our last, our final, our greatest request is fill us with Jesus. Fill us. We ask this in Jesus' name.